You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 10th of January. And on the programme today, as employee monitoring proliferates across all sectors, we'll get advice on how to stay within the law when it comes to social media apps like WhatsApp. Uh, we had lots of questions that came in on our phone-in, and we had two fab guests in the studio. We had employment lawyer Shiraz Sethi. He is regional head of employment at Denton's. And we also had barrister Amy Rogers. She's from 11 KPW Chambers in the UK. Meanwhile, Dubai police are warning residents about a scam email doing the rounds using their name and logo. We caught up with Lieutenant Rashid Ahmed Luta. He's director of the Cyber Forensic Department, and he explained exactly what is going on with that scam. And we also discussed the latest banking scams. That was with the Director General of the UAE Banks Federation, Jamal Saleh, who also had lots of advice for avoiding getting caught out by those scammers. And another story we looked at was shipping costs, because they have risen now by 250%. That is due to the unrest in the Red Sea. We wanted to find out how it's affecting local business owners. And we were joined on the line by Gary Sherrington Boyd, who said it's making planning nigh on impossible. Meanwhile, Kiwi researchers have created an app that could help reduce the impact of tinnitus. We spoke to the lead author of that research, Dr. Fabrice Bardi. It's been nearly two years now since a new labour law came into force here in the UAE, and that introduced a wide range of new protections for employees. You had everything from, like, there was the minimum wage. What else was there? Rules regarding leave. You had uh, new contracts. That was a big one. And, of course, discrimination was prohibited in any form. So all really reassuring, all made the UAE a more sort of attractive place to work and, and brought it on, on to, into sort of international norms in many ways. But interestingly, there weren't any sort of specific legislations relevant to employee monitoring in the UAE, or at least not that I've been able to find. I'm in a room with two lawyers at the moment, so I'm a little sensitive to, to saying things like that. Um, but, but you know, we, we really are seeing the use of that tech now proliferating across all sectors. I mean, it's been around for ages. You know, you've been able to do keystroke monitoring for, you know, about two decades now. Um, but obviously, it became much more common during COVID because everyone was working from home and employers wanted to keep an eye on people. Um, but we wanted to sort of, as, as a consequence, as we enter the new year, we wanted to look into what companies are and aren't allowed to do, particularly on, for example, your own devices. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have my own laptop. I have my own mobile phone. And as of yet, the company hasn't asked to put anything on it. But I am freelance. So I, I think the staff employees do get asked. Anyway, we're going to get into it. We're going to do a bit of a sort of phone-in. But yes, the aforementioned lawyers are Shiraz Sethi, who is Senior Partner and Regional Head of Employment. He's based in Denton's Dubai office. Shiraz, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate your time. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me and Happy New Year to you and yeah. all the listeners. Happy New Year to you. And then uh, a guest that we haven't had in the studio before, Barrister Amy Rogers from is it 11 KPW? It is indeed. It is. Fantastic. I, what I love about Barristers Chambers in the UK is that they basically... 
That's the address, isn't it? That's how they tend to. It's as unimaginative as it comes. We are our address, absolutely. My husband was a, um, he did various sort of placements, but it was like a fountain court. And it's like, oh, guess what? That is fountain court. Um, And Amy, you specialise in employment law as well. And what's great is that Amy has literally just flown into the UAE from um, the UK and can give us a really international perspective. And that's so important now because so many of the companies operating here are indeed multinationals and therefore will have that sort of view on on their sort of in-house HR rules. Shiraz, let's start with that that big question, which I boldly uttered earlier, um, you know, that there are no laws, no specific laws in the UAE um, that talk about employee monitoring or, or, for example, the use of WhatsApp chats in the workplace. And there's other off-channel comms like Slack, aren't there? Am I right? Absolutely. So, yes, I mean, look, there are um, a number of legislations um, in terms of electronic communications, etc., in the UAE, but nothing uh, that prohibits the use of uh, WhatsApp or other offline um, uh, channel, off-channel communications uh, in the workplace uh, specifically. Um, that's not to say, there, therefore, that... Um, it is allowed or it is prohibited. Um, This is something that employers must um, put in place, uh, effective measures, effective tools. Um, A lot of companies um, will have their own rules and regulations within uh, their organization uh, with regards to off-channel communication, such as WhatsApp, and how that is to be used, if at all, um, within uh, the business context. Um, You've got to take into account um, 100 100 billion messages on WhatsApp alone are sent on a daily basis. That's WhatsApp. So that's not taking into account any other uh, off-channel communications. Um, So it's a big um, uh, issue in terms of how employers deal with those sorts of situations uh, and how to monitor and control uh, their employees using WhatsApp and other forms of communication. Yeah, I mean, we were just discussing it on the business breakfast. um, And certainly... My friends and colleagues who have worked in Saudi specifically, I mean, it's happening here as well, but in Saudi Arabia, it is staggering. Things that once used to be sort of printed out contracts that were biked across town for someone to sign with a witness are now basically sent via WhatsApp. And like they said on the business breakfast, cleared with an emoticon. (laughs) Um, and, And we're talking big money deals here, you know, like a billion dollars signed off with with a thumbs up emoji um i mean a should you use emoticons in business and b should you be using whatsapp or these other off-channel comms uh devices or apps it in your workplace do you think well in from an, as an employment lawyer, my my answer and recommendation is always no you shouldn't interesting now, yeah. now look for from from my perspective you know in the uae as you said um, WhatsApp and other off-channel communications are used constantly, um, you know, in business. Um, whether rightly or wrongly, that's a different debate. But the the issue we have is that, cli- I mean, as as lawyers, clients want to communicate with you on WhatsApp. So you know, often I will get um, a message saying, um, you know, hi Shiraz, I have an employment contract to review, or I have a, I've just been terminated. Can you have a look at my termination letter? Um, I always go back on WhatsApp, but say, can you please send it to me on email so that, you know, you've got that security. Um, and of, the paper chain. And the paper trail as well, yeah. because, you know, you know th- there are issues around disappearing messages or, you know, you've got security 
security issues, sensitivity of uh, confidential information being shared. Um, and these are, you know, real, real issues that, that, that are arising uh, at the moment. Um, you know, from, from our perspective, you know, we try and maintain a, a policy that, you know, any clients that send us information on WhatsApp, you know, we will either call them or we will basically um, ensure that we go back to them on email so that that, that platform is secure uh, and you can keep control and an archive of, of all of that information. Um, but it is, um, you know, a, a big issue here. And as you've mentioned, you know, with emoticons and, and things, I mean, you go to the court cases here, um, you know, courts in the UAE are using WhatsApp evidence, you know, WhatsApp as evidence for, you know, looking at making decisions of whether a contract has been signed or agreed. And yes, absolutely. If someone has sent a contract and someone has given a thumbs up on, on, on a WhatsApp message, you know, that can be construed as a binding contract. However bizarre that may seem, that is absolutely the case. And, and courts have been uh, looking at these uh, matters uh, in, in great detail. So I think, you know, the, the recommendation from employment lawyers is always try to avoid, um, you know, WhatsApp for business purposes, because there are obviously there are clear advantages of using WhatsApp, but the dangers are, 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 are a lot. And I think you just need to be uh, cognizant of those. Amy, I want to bring you in here because uh, um, Shiraz mentioned something interesting there, which was you suggested actually, Shiraz, that, that email would be uh, more secure, for example, than WhatsApp. Now, I always think of WhatsApp as encrypted and therefore pretty secure. But but is that just one of many sort of misconceptions about about the ways in which these channels can be used in the workplace? It is. And there are some big misconceptions about the use of WhatsApp. I mean, taking that point about the security of it, one of the problems of WhatsApp for employers is if it exists on the phone of your employee, and let's imagine, as many people do, it's their own phone that they're using. Although they're using it for business purposes, it's not always in the employer's control. So you have all of that sometimes sensitive business information that once upon a time would have been on email, on your servers, you had control of it, you knew where it was, you knew what security you had in place. Actually, it's in somebody's pocket as they're strolling through an airport, wherever it might be. So it's a very different thing to email. And it is difficult for employers to keep that security around it. I mean, one of the misconceptions about WhatsApp, it's always seemed to me, is people use it because it's informal, because it's off channel, because it feels convenient and easy. But that blurs the line between the fact that they are still using it for work purposes. And it is still their employer's information that they're using when they're dealing with clients or dealing with contacts. And so it's this funny in-between thing that is a work tool on an employee's device in their pocket. Uh, and that means that people sometimes let their guard down. They're, they're much less careful on WhatsApp than they might be if they were sat in the office, sat at a computer using email in the old way. Oddly enough, I have WhatsApp on my um, on on my computer as well because it's faster to type on it. And obviously, I use that on the public computer here. I'm oh my goodness, I'm careful about turning that off. I tell you, um, but that just gives you a sense, yeah, a sort of a practical everyday example of how quickly your very private messages could be open to everybody else. I'm worried about my personal private messages, of course the boss is going to be worrying about their their work ones, aren't they? I mean, what are the risks? We've heard about the risks there to employees, but what about the risks to employers if, you know, if that type of data gets out? Yeah, it's um, 
could be catastrophic for an employer. Um, you know, I think firstly, reputationally, uh, it's a massive issue. Um, and so if some, something like this gets out, um, it will come into the public domain. I mean, the SEC, for example, in the US last year, fined uh, 11 banks $550 million uh, in total um, for use of, for the, having their employees use WhatsApp. Um, really? Yeah, and uh, not having the controls in place to archive those chats. So they were actually involved in investment advice over WhatsApp, but there was no backup or, or archive of that. So um, the SEC came down very hard on that. So regulators, um, you know, in financial services uh, specifically, are, are coming down very very hard on, on companies. On top of that, you've got obviously confidentiality issues you know, and breaches of confidentiality. And, and you know, and you have, as, a, as an employer, you have a duty of care to your uh, clients, to your employees and, and others. And so if you are not in control of those WhatsApp communications, then, you know, you very quickly, um, you know, lose, um, you know, the, 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 that, that, that information, uh, and that can be catastrophic to a business. Um, we've talked about sensitivity, um, you know, around the information. Um, and, and, and that is also uh, a, a major issue for, for employers uh, in the workplace. And then the other thing is, you know, with these types of platforms, uh, you're, open, you're opening yourselves up to, you know, cyber crimes or cyber criminals coming in and using these platforms, um, you know, for phishing uh, attacks, scams, malware coming onto your uh, devices. Uh, and, you know, so it can have uh, catastrophic um, consequences um, if it's not uh, looked at properly. I'm thinking about my privacy here, because I think most of the people listening will be thinking about their privacy. If my employer says, I want to look at what you've been doing and who you've been messaging, are they allowed to, to do that, Amy? Can they access my private WhatsApp channel? Well, the answer to that is broadly, it depends. So lots of employers now, mindful of the challenges posed by WhatsApp, are developing quite comprehensive policies that set out exactly what they say they're entitled to do and exactly what they can monitor. And you will find some employers, for example, take, take one case where they supply a phone and WhatsApp is on that phone. They may very well be entitled to review the messages, even seemingly personal messages on that phone, because those are the terms on which they've let you use it. Uh, where you have employers who let employees use their own phones, bring your own devices with WhatsApp on it, again, they may be entitled to review that. They may well have policies that you've agreed to as you enter into your employment that say they can monitor that personal material. Uh, so certainly, the safe assumption is to assume your employer may be able to, but there may be a policy that deals with it. And that's where the devil's going to be in the detail. We're going to continue with this conversation after the break. Uh, fantastic to have both uh, Barrister Amy Rogers and employment lawyer Shiraz Sethi, who is regional head of employment uh, based in Dubai's uh, Denton's Dubai's office. We are discussing employee monitoring on the programme today. I think it happens a lot more than any of us really realise. Brandy Scott was saying on the Business Breakfast this morning that two decades ago, she might have been exaggerating, but two decades ago, they had, she was working somewhere where they put keystroke monitoring on their computers. 
two decades ago. Can you imagine what they can do now? Well, we don't need to imagine it because we've got two experts in the studio with us. We've got employment lawyer Shiraz Sethi and employment barrister Amy Rogers from 11KBW Chambers in the United Kingdom. Um, We've actually been talking specifically about the use of WhatsApp in the workplace, haven't we, Shiraz? Because, of course, it is basically commonplace uh, everywhere in the world, very commonplace here and in the wider Middle East. So if people are going to continue to use it, what are your recommendations to ensure it's it's as secure as it can be, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are lots of um, things we can talk about um, in relation to recommendations for employers to ensure uh, a safer workplace uh, when it comes to use of WhatsApp and off-channel communications. I think from an employment context, um, as, as employment lawyers, my first recommendation would be ensure you get legal advice and secondly, make sure that you get a proper WhatsApp or off-channel communication usage policy in place. That is going to be really important for employees to understand what they can and what they cannot do when it comes to uh, you know, using WhatsApp or other off-channel communications in the workplace. Um, sec- uh, moving forward from that, then it's not, no point just having a, a policy you must train and educate your staff as well on how to how that policy uh, has come about what the what the risks are a lot of companies now have training manuals and, and sort of um, interactive training um, on, on screens that you know that, that show them the, the risks and, and, and uh, the issues that arise and, and send them through quite um, you know stringent training to to enable them to know exactly what the pitfalls are so th- those are some of the things from an employment perspective that I w- that I would look at from a there's a lot of tech now as you said with keystroke two decades ago um, you know there are definitely newer um, sort of apps and sort of monitoring tools that can be put in place um, problem with those is they're very expensive, uh, especially the newer tools uh, to, to actually implement. You need someone to actually go through and monitor what has been done. So again, you need a lot of time for, from other employees or staff to monitor uh, those sorts of things. So you know, usually empl- employers are not keen to do that because of the cost and the time that it takes to basically implement um, these 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 these, uh, these sort of uh, platforms, but you know there are other options. I mean, um, you know, we have Teams. Uh, a lot of people have used Teams since COVID. Um, you know, and you have the ability to have a chat on on those within um, your your business, so you can chat to employees, and those messages are archived. So you know you have a trail. Um, so there's that. There's also WhatsApp Business, WhatsApp AI. You know, which have more uh, sort of stringent tools for allowing for business purposes or use of those channel off channel communications in the workplace so there are many tools around but i think for employers what they need to consider is effectively having a, a good policy and, and training and ensuring if they are going to use uh, certain apps and tools that they get the consent of the employee to to be able to be monitored speaking about that consent I'm interested to know whether, Amy, companies can choose to put trackers and programs that monitor your mobile phone. So, for example, could they monitor your use of, of WhatsApp on your phone? If, and do they need to ask permission for that? 
That's such an interesting and important question. And it's one that's being played out absolutely internationally as people try to work out, you know, how do you draw the boundary between the employer's right to see what's happening in their business and the employee's right to have privacy and to have a private life? And as Shira says, generally, consent is absolutely key. Uh, And sometimes that's done when people sign their employment contracts, sign up to their employment. They also agree to terms that say, well, I agree that my employer can monitor me in particular ways, whether on my email or my WhatsApp. Now, people don't always realise what they've signed up to Mm. because not everybody reads that paperwork as carefully as they should when they start their new job. Uh, But but consent is absolutely key. Uh, Once you have consent, it's also a question of something that is proportionate. So you need to be monitoring in a way that is designed to identify risks to your business and not obviously pouring through what may be reams of personal information. And quite how you draw that balance, which is really difficult, will depend on the business you're in, will depend on the types of employees you're dealing with. Uh, and you know, there are, as Shiraz says, some financial services companies, for example, that take a very intensive, almost intrusive approach to monitoring because they think it's really critical to protect their reputation. And there are other sectors and other businesses that take the view, actually, a much lighter touch is appropriate for the way they work. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, And we could continue this conversation for many more minutes. I'm already three minutes late for the news, though, so I'm going to get into terrible trouble. Um, But both of my to both of my guests, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, Barrister Amy Rogers from 11 KPW Chambers in the United Kingdom. Employment lawyer Shiraz Sethi, he's regional head of employment here in Denton's office. Thank you both very much indeed for your time. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Right, we're going to take a look at a story that's been dominating the headlines ooh, since mid-November now because uh, the latest uh, update is that shipping costs have now surged by 250% due to that unrest in the Red Sea. And there are concerns that the continuing disruption could lead to higher inflation globally. Now, that is according to industry analysts at the Drury World Container Index. And they track basically freight rates on eight major routes to and from the United States, Europe and and Asia. And basically costs have gone up from four, well, they were 1,148 per container, that's dollars, in November when the problems first started. And now they're at $4,000. It's all basically comes down to the fact that shippers are being forced to send their boats down via Africa. And that takes about 25% longer than going through the Suez Canal. And that, of course, has a knock-on effect, as Stefania Sierra from DASA International Movers explained on our programme last week. We can expect the murder and detention because the lack of vessels will make the container sit in the port longer. We will also get to an equipment imbalance where we will struggle to find empty containers. Obviously, increasing the transit times will also make an impact on certain containers docks where containers will pile up. Some ports have been struggling historically with availability of truck drivers. So it will have a domino effect on many parts of the logistic chain. 
Joining me now to talk through the effects that this is having on his business is uh, local SME owner Gary Sherrington Boyd. He's the director of Rotorex Firetech based here in Dumai. Gary, thank you so much for joining me on Microsoft Teams. Tell me, have you noticed costs going up for your business? Yeah. Hi, Georgia. Good morning. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. Um, yeah, definitely. Definitely. The costs have risen. Um the problem is shipping costs are a little bit and, and, and the brokers and the agents that manage it for you are a little bit like football agents. You know, a, a footballer can spend the whole season doing nothing, come off the bench, score a hat trick and then his value goes up 100 million. There's no logic to it. Um, so the costs itself are not really a major concern for me purely because whatever I'm bringing in, the cost gets followed on to my client. So it's down to my client to make the decision. Are they going to pay the increased costs or not? Um Luckily, in a way, because the situation is so in the forefront of the press, it's clearly an issue that, you know, the whole region is suffering with from a shipping aspect. So there's not that uh, the element of, oh, you're just trying to make more money out of me because of a scenario. Um, My major problem is now for forecasting, because for me, time is now the biggest issue. So. Uh, uh, you know, we, we 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 manufacture some things here in the UAE. We assemble some things here in the UAE, but I'm still very heavily reliant on pulling things in from the Far East and Europe. Now, obviously, historically with Europe, um, it would have just come through the Suez Canal. Um, so if you look at Antwerp to Jebel Ali, you're, you're looking at about 12,000 kilometers uh, and, and roughly 30 days on the ocean. Okay. With the with the new shipping route, that's doubled. Oh wow! So yeah, so I, the twenty the, the the number of twenty five percent. Not sure where that number's coming from, because you know I, I may have only got a C in my maths for GCSEs. But if something was twelve thousand kilometres or fifteen thousand kilometres and now is doubled, that's also going to double the time. So now anything that was thirty days is going to be sixty days. Plus, obviously, the added issues of backlog, um, containers being held at port because the client doesn't want to pay for it because he doesn't want to pay the increased prices. So, yeah, time time for me now is a major problem because, obviously, my, my company and the business that I represent is project-based. So my clients have a start date for a project, like construction, basically, you know, so yeah. we, we, we manufacture fire suppression systems. Um, the project timelines will still keep going the way they were scheduled to, you know, that that the project was supposed to start building Shell and Core in January 2023, and it's supposed to complete February 2026. That's not going to change. But the problem is now we're going to have to add add one to two to maybe even three months now on all containers to give our clients a safe timeline where we can 99% guarantee that we can get the goods to them in time because I've got to bring it in here. I've got to do what I need to do with it and ship it back out again. Um, and, And whilst the far East isn't a massive challenge for us because it doesn't touch the canal. um, We have a lot of business in Egypt so I have the opposite. So the problem we have with Europe coming around the Cape of Hope into Jebel Ali, uh, I have the same problem now with the Far East. The Far East has to go around the Cape of Hope, up around to the top of Egypt into Alexandria. So again, we're now what was fifteen thousand kilometres is now thirty thousand. 
Wow, my goodness me. It, I have to say, it isn't until you get into the nitty gritty of uh, logistics that you start to realise just how complicated things are and, and just how much of a knock-on impact that's going to have in you know nearly every single sector. You suddenly understand why we could see uh, an increase in inflation globally. You know These delays are just bound to have that knock-on effect. Gary Sherrington-Boyd, fire expert and director for Rotorex Firetech, thank you very much for that, for that glimpse into the impact that this problem in the Red Sea is having on businesses here in the UAE. Now we're going to look at a topic that, I mean, we do do it quite a lot on the show, but um, it does come up again and again. And the reality is, is that, I mean, literally hundreds of us are getting caught out every single day. And I am, of course, talking about scams. Specifically, this time, the focus is on email phishing, because Dubai police has this week issued a warning to the city's residents following reports of a raft of fake emails impersonating officers. Basically, the messages uh, suggest that recipients have sort of committed a crime of some sort or they've received a fine. And uh, the the idea is that you'll then send them your bank details. Um, and that means that these fraudsters are getting hold of your data, your card details. And in some cases, they're even managing to just get payouts because people are just paying these sort of fake fines. But how are you, you know, I, I mean, it's it's really anxiety inducing to get what, you know, what appears to be an email from Dubai police. So how can you tell a real one from a fake? Well, to find out a little earlier, I sat down with Lieutenant Rashid Ahmed Luta. He is director of the Cyber Forensics Department at Dubai Police. And he explained that the methods that scammers are using is constantly changing. And that's just one of the reasons why we need to stay vigilant. As we know, cybercrime is involving. And recently, the number of complaints related to the civil fraudulent method has increased significantly. Through email, spoofing website, and impersonation call from people pretending to be a police officer. Yeah, we've really noticed it. I have to say, I think whoever the scammers are have given up on me because I tend to give them a piece of my mind mm-hmm. whenever they, they call up. But I know that my husband's had a call recently and, and they have been proliferating. Mm-hmm. It, there's Specifically, emails have been coming through. Is that is that a typical technique for scammers? Actually, it's not a typical technique. It's a, a very popular criminal method involved, the arriving of email from a, a site pretending to be a police. Well, the victim access the email that he received. Then he believed that this email, it's coming from Dubai police because it's have a logo from Dubai police or even any other police in, in the UAE. Well, this email telling the victim, you have done some violation or you have a fine to pay. So the victim trusts this email because it has a logo, but it's a spoofed email. It's already have been prepared by the fraudster. And there is in the email, there will be a link asking the victim to click on that link in order to pay his fine or his violation. So unawareness or less awareness from the people, they go to the link, they click on the link, they transfer him to a website which already prepared by the suspicious. 
and then they will ask him to put his credit card details or bank details and from that he will put the OTP verification then he will receive a message from the bank telling him some money have been detected from your account to such a place so ultimately the aim of this specific scam is to steal money from you and i suppose also to harvest your bank details potentially yes most of them targeting bank details some of them targeting getting more information from the people like getting your digital id or digital identity in order to open an account from your digital identity let's say uh, i want like to order on some place for example any e-commerce i want to open a new account i want to put any details from there so i use the digital identity which i have already stolen from the victim i put his details only the things which could be real to steal it and do you have any idea who is doing this i mean how do you investigate digital fraud how do you track it back to find out who the actual criminals are first we have an the e-crime platform it's the primary platform for receiving any electronic or complaint from the victims in the region of dubai and also we have a cybercrime patrols access that we can use it to in, in different social media to track this suspicious website or email in order to at least close it before they start using it so basically if the public gets in touch with you guys quickly then you can potentially sort of close down these types of websites or close down the scam before it you know gets started almost it could be on both way if we received the complaint from the victim or it could be by ourselves because as i said we have a cyber crime patrols that access all the websites social media looking for these things oh so you're really proactive as well in sort of targeting yeah. these scammers do you yeah. think that people here in the uae are targeted more than people in other countries i i've heard in the past the suggestion that because the uae has a reputation for having successful well off people living here that maybe we get targeted more than in other countries to be honest it's not more targeting this is an international issue it is in all around us sometime we receive a video from different country from let's say kuwait or from us or from uk or any other country there's someone pretend to be a police officer and asking the victim to get this details so i think it's an international issue it's not targeting only the uae So what is your overarching advice to the public? We have conducted many awareness campaign. Our partner strategies such as Dubai Electronic Security Center Desk and Digital Dubai and Telecommunication and Digital Government Regulation TEDRA and Emirates MBD we posted many awareness about this suspicious website and email we try as much as we can to improve the awareness and giving some advice to how to avoid becoming a victim like first always we need to check the source information carefully and avoid blind trust this is the most issue that we have it in the digital world we trust anybody blind trust and the second thing carefully read the otp because the otp have been enhanced 
to include the value of the transaction that which will be deducted from your account and the name of the beneficiary payment for the transaction. And we need to remember and be careful and aware that government entity or banks will never ask you to provide me with the card detail and or information or ID details via phone or via emails. In Dubai Police, as I said, we have an e-crime platform that can be accessed from the application or from ecrime.ae. From there, they can open a case in three to five minutes and it depends how fast he's writing. So it's maximum, it will take from him five minutes, but it could be less. Really interesting to hear there from Lieutenant Ahmed Rashid Luta. He is uh, basically in charge of the forensics department, the cyber forensics department at Dubai Police. He's the director there, bringing us sort of up to date as, uh, as to what you should do if you are being targeted by scammers and the different ways in which you can inform Dubai Police. Even if you don't get caught out, uh, you can inform them of the potential scams. Uh, in fact, there's some really interesting scams going around at the moment. Apparently, um, some people have been uh, defrauded because of uh, null cards, you know, websites pretending to be from the RTA, uh, enabling you to to update or um, recharge your null card. Uh, But apparently, many... uh, many of the sites that pop up if you search for it, in fact, the first four sites when you Google it are actually all fraudulent. So you need to be super careful. And those are sponsored sites. You just need to be super careful uh, as to where you're you're actually doing your update. But it's not the only, the only place. There's also Global Village and Museum of the Future websites uh, that are scamming people. So you just need to make sure that you're going to the genuine Global Village website and the genuine museum Museum of the Future website. Otherwise, you could find that you lose money. But what can what can you do if if you actually do get defrauded? If you go to one of these websites and you actually put in your details and and you spend the money, uh, can you then get the money back from your bank? Are you insured if you use a credit card, for example? This is the agenda on Dubai Eye one hundred three point eight, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there and welcome back to the show. We were hearing about the latest email scams uh, that were targeting Dubai residents. And uh, it does seem to be there's a, there's a bit of a problem with scammers using Dubai police's sort of logo and pretending, ultimately pretending to be from Dubai police. But what about those people who've already fallen foul to scammers? You know, perhaps you've already, you know, accidentally put an OTP in for, for too big a number Um when someone's messaged you in a phishing attempt or perhaps as I just mentioned before the break you you've gone onto a website that isn't a a null website isn't an RTA website even though it it professes to be so or even for Global Village or the Museum of the Future well there are some protections offered by the banks themselves Uh, and I wanted to get into the details of that so I'm delighted to be joined now on Teams by Jamal Saleh. Now he is Director General of the UAE Banks Federation. He's joining me on Teams. Jamal, thank you very much for taking the time. Lovely to see you again. Happy New Year. (laughs) Thank you. First of all, I mean, you'll have a really good overview of this. How big an issue is financial scamming here in the Emirates? 
Um, it's it's rampant uh, because so many people elsewhere in other countries think that people living here have so much money and therefore let's try to steal them. Unfortunately, it's happening often. Um, the good thing is that it's not happening in large ticket items. So uh, it's it's the retail frauds, the smaller amounts that are happening very often. Uh, but uh, good that we're not seeing the, the big frauds. I mean, that can still have a, a considerable impact on your pocket if, you, if you've if you accidentally spent several hundred dirhams and, 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 you know, you don't earn a great deal each month. Is there protection from the banks if, if you do fall into the trap of one of these scamming websites, for example? Yeah, if if the if the, uh, the, the the scam happened with you doing everything correctly, the banks are more than ready to help you on on your case. But unfortunately, what we often see, and I get a copy of the complaints and the grievances that are filed by the public, uh, we often see that people uh, uh, in in so many cases have acted in a way that they, they were they were uh, 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 defrauded. Someone called them, asked them for all their account details or all their card details and so forth. The problem with cases like this is that it you you wouldn't know whether this was a genuine transaction or a fraudulent transaction. Uh, it's exactly like me buying uh, uh, something for a friend of mine using my credit card or using his credit card where someone gives you the details of their card genuinely. Um, when someone has not committed a major uh, 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 violation or a major mistake, the banks will work with them for sure. Now, unfortunately, we um, we have been doing our campaign, the awareness campaign for the last four years to educate people that no one will call you over a mobile number to ask you for your card details, full details, including the CVV on the bag and so forth. No one from Dubai police will call you or from UBF or Central Bank and so forth. Uh, But unfortunately, we continue to see that the public is not, uh, a part of the public is not savvy enough to to avoid uh, uh, clicking uh, uh, suspicious links on uh, emails, uh, clicking deals that are too good to be true, uh, selling something online or buying something online and uh, providing someone you don't know with all your details, um, uh, uh, including the PIN and the OTP that you receive and everything. Um, what we have been doing lately is that we have been trying to find ways to uh, find a mechanism to compensate people who get defrauded, genuinely defrauded. Uh, and of course, this cannot be uh, uh, repetitive. Uh, because, as you said, it does make a big difference for someone who has a salary of, you know, hardly managing by every month to suddenly suddenly lose 2,000 dirhams uh, for an item that they don't have on, on their hand. Yeah, uh, I so mean... The, the, we are working with the authorities to find a mechanism to uh, uh, compensate those people. That's really interesting that you're trying to create some sort of um, scheme that can help those people because, unfortunately, the scammers are increasingly skilled in the way they they trick people. Um, I mean, I've heard of examples, for example, where you ask for an OTP number. You you agree to do a payment of, say, I don't know, eight dirhams on your credit card, on your phone maybe – and the OTP comes through and you, you plug in the OTP only to discover that you've inadvertently 
put in that number for a much bigger sum of money. And somehow the scammers have managed to twist the link so that instead of just paying eight dirhams, you're, for example, paying 8,000 dirhams. And it can be it can be really clever, you know, and in those situations, you are in a, you know, you would hope that your the insurance you have with your credit card, for example, would protect you in those circumstances. In in some circumstances, but it, it must be that you have not committed a grave violation. That's the catch. You know, that's the issue. And unfortunately, what I see from the grievances that I get is that in most cases, the person admits that I was called by someone and I know I made a mistake and I gave them all my details and the PIN and the CVP and the OTP, etc. You have to watch the videos of Kit Pogi and uh, Poison Renoa who run uh, examples like this where uh, you are buying it, as you said, for um, uh, eight uh, dirhams, but instead of 8.00, they will put it as 8.00. Yeah. Uh, and then suddenly you are out of 792 dirhams for, for nothing. Uh, you will not even get the item of the dirhams. Now, the only way we can stop this, I am often told by so many to teach uh, the latest uh, type of fraud and how to prevent it. Unfortunately, by the time I teach everyone how to avoid a specific fraud, by then a new type of fraud have come up by fraudsters. So, it's it's an ongoing uh, you know change. Uh, fraudsters are innovative; they keep coming up with ways to defraud people. There's only one way to stop fraudsters, which is to be vigilant with your cards, with your information. No one, no one should get your private information over a phone call, especially if it's from a mobile. Dubai police will never call you. UBF will never call you. So will uh, a central bank. So will uh, any authority. Um, don't uh, click suspicions, suspicious uh, links. There is no deal uh, called uh, buy one pizza, get three free. If there was a deal by anyone, you would have seen it on the roads uh, day in and day and day night. Uh, and suddenly you find one website, one page, suspicious page that says we are selling, you know, big name pizza. For, for for the price of one, only one page is offering it. Uh, you have to be uh, uh, savvy with your information. Um, you should never give your details. But for example, I want to uh, sell something online. How am I going to get my money? All I need to give them is my IBAN. Your IBAN identifies you and you will get your money. But give me your IBAN, card uh, number, account number, PIN, uh, and now you'll get an OTP, give it to me, and blah, blah, blah. It means you're, you're trying to steal me. Jamal Saleh, always fantastic advice. Thank, advice there. Thank you so much for your time here on the agenda. Uh, Jamal is Director General of the UAE Banks Federation. Really great to have him on the radio. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. Talking about scams on the program today, um, people are very kindly sharing the types of scams that they've spotted recently. Uh, Sanjay, thank you very much for your call. Uh, he said, 
M-Post, oh yeah, the Emirates Post delivery scam uh, comes up on a regular basis. Uh, the idea, so I've seen ones where it suggests that I just need to pay like an eight dirham customs charge and then I'll get the post delivered. Um, Sanjay says that he sees one where you're encouraged to update your address with the link provided and he thinks that one's pretty dodgy. Also, um, there are phone call scams from foreign mobile numbers. He said that you should watch out for those uh, and that will actually... Um, if you, if you don't even pick up that call, then, of course, uh, you're not going to get, um, you know, you're not going to get done. Uh, my husband actually um, remonstrated with at least a couple of people who got in touch with him regarding scams. Yeah, they, they were calling on, for example, on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve and uh, trying to get his bank details. Um, he says in some situations he's had calls where people didn't even really sound like they were trying. They were just sort of reading a script. You know, it's got to that stage where people are just trying their luck. Um, joined on the line now by Mariana, who has called in. Mariana, I understand that you've had a, a real problem um, with a scam. What, what happened for you? Hello. Yes, I had a recent scam and it was very bad. So I got a text message from the bank saying that my password has been changed in my, um, in my application, my online application. Mm-hmm. And then um, another message saying that the mobile phone was changed to a mobile phone that I don't possess, a different brand. So then I, I got a call from the bank saying that they needed um, my, how is it called, my Emirates ID to be changed in the UAE pass. Goodness. So I checked and I said, no, I can see my, my recent Emirates ID. And they said, no, this is different. You need to update it. Okay, so I did. And with this, they access everything. And what happened is they wiped out my account. No, all my savings were gone. And then they uh, requested the bank to um, give money in advance from my credit card. And now I'm dealing with this debt that I never, never, never authorized. I mean that so is was done. Yeah. That is everybody's absolute sort of nightmare scenario. It I is. really feel for you in that situation. Very, very difficult indeed. Um, there is a number of that you can get in touch with. I'm just looking it up now. It's the, the UAE Banking Federation actually have a line that people can call if, if, they've, if they've got problems. And I'm just, I'm searching for it now because it is very, very difficult in that situation. It sounds like you were targeted by people who were very knowledgeable about what they were doing and, and, and knew exactly how to to go, you know, how to bypass essentially uh, the bank's own devices. Um, I mean, of course, I imagine you've been in touch with the police on this. They have a cyber fraud uh, line as well. And I am going to look up that number for you. Oh, yeah, it says fight uh, fight fraud. So obviously you can f- phone Dubai police on 901. But I'm going to get those details for, for who you can contact at the UAE Banking Federation so that um, hopefully they will be able to help you with that. But Marianne, thank you so much for getting in touch and for telling us your story. I'm so sorry um, that you're in that situation. It really does sound uh, very, very difficult indeed to have lost so much money uh, so quickly. Um, so yeah, we'll find out that number for you and get back to you very, very shortly with those details. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai I 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. Really interesting study we're going to look at next. Uh, And it all focuses around 
tinnitus. Do you know what it is? Basically, it's a sort of constant ringing in your ears or it could be a sort of constant buzzing, a bit like a mosquito. Um, and there are tens of millions of people who, who suffer from it worldwide. And it, it can be really debilitating for people who suffer from it. And there are some treatments, things like uh, you can have CBT, which is a type of therapy. You can also have sound therapy, but they're often very expensive. And uh, especially here in the UAE, they're not always covered by insurance. Uh, but there's a group of scientists in New Zealand who've now created an app that they hope can be used to basically provide relief for sufferers. And it doesn't involve any sort of medical intervention. It's, it's really interesting. It's called Mind Ear. And it uses AI technology to provide a type of therapy through a chatbot. And the initial surveys are very positive indeed. Here is a little sample of what it calls tonal therapy. It's one of those funny things where it starts and you're like, this is horrible. And then you sort of get used to it, don't you? Just gradually. Anyway, to find out more about how it works, I'm joined now on the line by Dr. Fabrice Bardi from the University of Auckland. He's the first author of the study and actually uh, struggles with tinnitus himself. Dr. Bardi, good morning for us. Good evening for you. Um, can you sort of first of all explain why tinnitus is so debilitating for people? Very nice. Thanks to having me. Um, yes. Uh, so one of the things which can be uh, experienced by people who are experiencing tinnitus uh, is that you feeling out of control and there is actually no switch uh, to flick. You can't turn it on or off. And uh, some are, it's, it's to some extent very normal to feel uh, very anxious when we start to experience uh, a tinnitus uh, in the sense that it can create uh, a, a sense of um, non-control. Um, interestingly, like more than the ringing itself, there's all the symptoms uh, which can be associated with the tinnitus, such as um, anxiety or stress. We know that uh, there's a biodirectional uh, link between stress and tinnitus, meaning that tinnitus can create more stress, uh, but also stress can create tinnitus. And being able to uh, help people to manage uh, this symptom can be extremely helpful for for, uh, for people who experience tinnitus. So how does the app work? It, does it just involve playing that sound to you? No, so like um, uh, the app is using or leveraging the chatbot technology uh, in order to better understand what uh, are the difficulty experienced by the user. So uh, we know that in certain cases, uh, the tinnitus can be linked to hearing problems. We know that in certain cases can be create sleep problems. We know that in certain cases it can be really the stress and the anxiety, and the anxiety which, which is a problem. So using the the chatbot, we are able to ask this question and then afterwards deliver some modules or some content which is really going to be able to sort of like um, help the person to manage their reaction to the tinnitus. The great news is like our brain is, a, is, is, is plastic and can adapt 
to uh, stimuli. Um, if you drive in your car in the morning to work, I'm sure that um, none of us will have uh, heard. We, we don't take put any attention to the, the sound of the of the engine of the, of the car. And and similarly for the tinnitus, uh, after some time, if we know that uh, it, there is not a, any danger uh, to basically to hear the signal, then we will be able to filter it out and train the brain to sort of like tune out the tinnitus. Uh, now, if the your car is n making a new noise, let's say that potentially it could be like a tire, it could be like something, a problem with the engine, suddenly you're going to start monitoring and your attention, your focus is going to basically go into the engine of the car because potentially it could be an accident. A little bit the same thing happened for, for, for people experiencing tinnitus uh, in the sense that we want to stop uh, and, and help people to manage their attention about uh, and where they put their attention, minimizing the amount of energy we spend to monitor the tinnitus. I mean, absolutely fascinating. Amazing that you can train the brain to sort of ignore the tinnitus. And I wish you all the best with your app. Uh, my uh, my husband actually struggles with tinnitus. So I'll be telling him all about Mind Ear uh, and he can download it and hopefully we'll get some relief because I know that for people who really struggle with it, it can really cause a, a lot of problems. Uh, fantastic to speak to you, uh, Dr. Fabrice Bardi. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. Fabrice is from the University of Auckland. And the name again, of that app. It's called Mind Air. Well worth checking it out. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.